it uh, it's a difficult thing, and it's not the same on the phone line as it is uh, in person. And it's so easy to drift uh, when we're not together, which is why God tells us that this is a commanded assembly and not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, but to be together and to let iron sharpen iron and help each other, encourage and strengthen each other uh, by one thing, our being there, and then not only being there, but being encouraging and helpful and friendly with each other uh, so that we're all headed in the same direction and uh, to get there, we need help. First, we need God's help, uh, above all, but we also need each other's help. And that's what we need to be working toward, is helping each other uh, as we walk the walk of faith. No man is an island, truly, and we need each other. So that's echoed throughout the Bible in many, 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 many scriptures. So just a, a thought about you out there and, and how difficult it is to be on your own. Uh, it's, it's just plain difficult. I had uh, someone inform me this morning that uh, in Living Church of God, uh, they had preached that they ought to wear masks, uh, and they could kind of mumble or hum <laughs> during the song service if they couldn't sing, and uh, we ought to obey the authorities and do what they say. Now, of course, they're using Romans 13, I think it is, to indicate that. Uh, I wrote an email back and says, we're not wearing masks. We don't intend to wear masks. If you're sick, go home <laughs> or stay home, <laughs> whatever the sickness is. God does have quarantine laws in the Bible where somebody has something that is communicable, they should stay home and not spread it to others. That's just part of love. If I got a bad cold, I don't want everybody else to have it, and I don't want you to give me yours. So, you know, we should, we should practice those things. But what's the answer to that? Because part of the story was, that two ministers, one had been a long, long time elder in living, had given instruction in sermons that they were not going to wear the masks and shouldn't. And they got disfellowshipped by Gerald Weston, who's the presiding officer there, for saying you don't need to wear a mask. So... This issue of the coronavirus is actually dividing people in God's church, not just the nation, but the church. And it's getting pretty bizarre out there. Uh, if you're the one around without a mask and most people around you are wearing one, it's getting to the point people will get nasty verbally and even physically attack. <clears throat> but still in all, where should we stand on an issue like that? Uh, yes, God says we should give credence, obedience to the laws and the rulers of the land. Uh, that's true. And we should have respect for 
whatever government has been put in place, and God said that even he puts over the nations the basis of men there in Daniel. So, <clears throat> whether they could be good or bad, and he says, I do put the bad ones in there. I think here at the end, he's putting in the worst of the worst. <laughs> in our nation, even. Do we have to obey everything they come up with? Many of the things that they are doing are simply unconstitutional. Uh, you have freedoms guaranteed by that constitution, which you don't have to put on a mask. Uh, you don't have to curtail your speech because you're guaranteed certain rights by that constitution. So... We have to learn to use wisdom because he does say you ought to obey God rather than man also. So even though he encourages us to obey man, he also says put God ahead of man and obey him first. So making that decision in each and every case that comes up is something where we have to weigh God's attitude, his approach, his words, against what man is telling us to do. Now, some things man tells us to do, we might not like, but hey, it's not hurting, and it's not disobeying any principle of God, so maybe I'll do that. Uh, or I will do that. <clears throat> but what if there's conflict? Well, if there's conflict, you put God first. What if they come out and tell us, all right, it was mandatory that you wear a mask. That's step one. Now it's mandatory that you get vaccinated. There's step two. You going to do it? If you, if you wear the mask, you're starting to go along with the beast power. You're starting to accept their total domination over you. Now, I want God to have my total respect and look to his authority first. Wearing a mask is not good for me. It cuts down the oxygen supply. It may kill two out of my last three brain cells. I don't know because I'm not getting air. Uh, it doesn't prevent disease. It doesn't help keep me from spreading disease. It's something that man is doing in an attempt at total domination. You can't meet in church. Or maybe your church will get fined a lot. But you can go to the casino. You know? We're not going to do in God's church what man tells us if it doesn't seem logical in our obedience to God. Now, God is my healer, and he's told me that in the Scripture over and over again. Bill Gates is not my healer. Neither is Dr. Fauci, or whatever they call him. God is. So, I'm not going to take a vaccine. Now, if they come to my door and pin me down, 
and stick me anyway, that's on them. But I am not going to voluntarily submit to a vaccine. Haven't now for a lot of years, and my children never had one, uh, and I hope never do, now that they're almost almost grown, 50-ish. <laughs> so it's not going to happen, and it's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to allow it to happen. Now, what does that mean? It means I may have to stay home right here, because when they start doing this uh, to everybody, mandatory, they're going to have the military and the UN or whoever they put together to have roadblocks and stop you and give it to you. Now, this may be either the mark of the beast or the beginning thereof. Because they're talking about putting a chip in there that has all your personal info on it and when you got the shot and everything about it. It could very easily be the 666. Or if you submit to the first vaccination, they're going to come along with the other one, and since you've already submitted to the first, you'll take the second, especially when they say you can't buy or sell or have a job or go to school without it. And that's what they're going to do. You can't do anything without this vaccination. All right, I'm not going to take it. It says anybody that take it is taking the mark of the beast, and they won't be in the kingdom of God. I would rather be dead in this life than miss out on the kingdom of God. So if I don't take it and they haul me in and stick my head in the guillotine, fine. I don't mean fine in the sense of I'm looking forward to it. I mean fine in the sense of, I'll put God ahead of man and his edicts, and if they kill me for it, so what? Didn't they stone and kill the prophets? Didn't they kill Paul and James and Peter and John, not John, but everybody else? Yeah. So that just puts us in good company. What does this life mean, brethren? What does it mean? This whole thing is starting to divide churches, churches of God. Now, therefore, is it a good thing? <laughs> because it's causing division and people being disfellowshipped and fired because they say, hey, we don't need that. We shouldn't have that. You know, like a boiling or like a frog in water that's getting hotter, you accept this. And, oh, well, I might as well accept this and this. And they get you going down there saying yes. And first thing you know, yes, 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 yes. And then you're in deep trouble. So I don't want to even start down that road. I see where it's leading, and the mask is the first part of it. So I'm not going to wear it. I, went, I think I told you last week, I went in Costco they handed me one as I went in the door. So I put it up over my mouth, not my nose, and walked on past, and then I put it in my pocket. And nobody attacked me. <laughs> they, they could, but they didn't. I did the same thing in Walmart. Now, if they demand that I keep it on, I just won't go there. I am not there to rob a bank, so why do I need a mask? 
we're not going to impose it here. I think it's leading us in the wrong direction and away from God if we accept their edicts and what they're saying because we know good and well where they're headed. I just heard a report that in December of last year, uh, the Bilderbergers and the elite group of 127 people had their meeting in Switzerland. And they've been preparing now for decades to unleash what is being unleashed on us and already has been, to destroy our economy, destroy our country, and to enslave us. And this has been going on for decades. It's actually been going on for several centuries where they've been wanting to dominate the entire world with their new world order, which is talked about in the Bible as the beast and the false prophet power. God told us long ahead of time that there would be a world-ruling empire here at the end, and only his people would be protected out of it, those whom he calls. And we are seeing it forming very, very rapidly today, and it has been unleashed. But they said in that meeting, apparently, all right, we've been preparing, preparing, preparing. Now let's turn it loose. And they did. And they're using this whole virus thing, which is not as bad as the flu, as an excuse to destroy the economy of the world and to enslave the people of the world. So if you start going down that road with them, that's where you're headed. That's where you're headed. So I refuse to go down that road with the first phase, which is gloves and a mask. I wore the gloves for a while and didn't know how bad this thing was going to be. And uh, now I don't. I do sanitize my hands some and try to wash my hands, but uh, I'm not going down that road. I think it's a wrong thing. I mean, if the churches of God start knuckling under to the beast, that's where they're going to go. And it's sad to see, because that's the direction they're headed. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get on with what God is saying to us directly. Not that he isn't saying what I just talked about. It's all in the scriptures there. We just didn't go there on all of it. But let's get back a little bit more to Abraham, just a little more on him today, and then on to some other things here. But our discussion really is, why would Abraham be God's friend? And what were his characteristics and his personality like so that God would treasure Abraham? That he would make him the father of a nation that he would himself raise up to be ultimately an example to the world. And they didn't do so well as physical Israelites, but he's expecting us to do better as spiritual Israelites and to make his plan work through his spirit and his power. Anyway, let's come on down to uh, chapter 20. Here's an interesting story again. we I think we already had it once where Abraham said Sarah was his sister. And he said this here in chapter 20 to Abimelech, king of Gerar, who had sent for and took Sarah back to his palace 
because she was such an extraordinary woman. But he hadn't laid hands on her in verse 4. And he said, Lord, will you slay also a righteous nation? So Abimelech had some respect for Abraham from past doing and had told him that he could live anywhere in his land he wanted to. Or is, is that a little bit later? Maybe it is. Maybe we've not come to it yet. I read it and then I forget what order. But uh, here, Abimelech was considering the situation because he knew Abraham served God. And here he was taking a woman from Abraham, not knowing actually that it was his wife, but considering it was a sister. And yet still, in a way, it's theft, is it not? Uh, you send over there and say, you guys go get Sarah and bring her to me. She didn't want to go. Abraham didn't want her to go. But here these troops showed up, and she went. There wasn't much else that could be done. So Abimelech's going over this in his mind a bit. In verse 5 he said, Said he not to me, she is my sister. And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. So he's finding out that, well, that is also a wife. And he said, I was innocent of that. I didn't know that. So I wasn't stealing a wife. I was stealing a sister, which made it considerably better, I guess, in his mind and in his conscience. God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Uh, therefore suffered I you not to touch her. Interesting that God would have an influence on Abimelech, a Gentile king, uh, and put the thoughts in his head that he shouldn't touch this woman. Because normally... A king, having a new woman, would immediately do so. But not in this case, because God had put it in his mind not to. So God is manipulating here Abimelech for Abimelech's own good, because he read Abimelech's heart and mind, and he knew that Abimelech, had he touched her, would have been doing it not knowing what the offense was. So God helped him, and he told him so in this dream. So he also gave him instruction. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. And if you restore her not, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. So he's given a pretty strong dream. You'll live and Abraham will pray for you. Now, God's putting some confidence in Abraham here because of his knowledge of Abraham in his character and his mind and what Abraham was like. So Abimelech got up early, called his servants, and they were afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And what have I offended you that you've brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin that God told me would get me killed? You have done deeds 
in me that you ought not to be that ought not to be done. He says, You're wrong, Abraham. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have said what you said. So here's Abraham's response. Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So she was half-sister. He wasn't totally lying, just not whole-sister. But he's explaining It came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is the kindness which you shall show to me. At every place where we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. So he set it up way ahead of time that she would pose or take her sister half and use it instead of the wife half, uh, so as to keep pressure off him. Now, Abimelech, verse 14, took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them to Abraham and restored him Sarah, his wife. So Abimelech realized he'd made, in the eyes of God, a grievous error, so he wanted to make some restitution here uh, beyond just restoring Sarah. Now, in God's law, if you steal, you're supposed to return, I think it's three times, what you stole. Uh, so that you learn that's not the way to go. And Abimelech was following that principle, whether he knew it or not. So he said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, and this is to cover your shame and so on for having been taken. Uh, this this verse is a little unclear here, but I looked it up, and that was that was pretty much the essence of it. Now, 17, so Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech <coughs> and his wife and his maidservants, and they bore children. For the Eternal had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So he shut down production of babies until this was resolved. Now, what I was getting to here in this story, though, is not Abimelech, who did have a good attitude when the thing was said and done, and probably was more Christian than a lot of Christians about it, uh, but Abraham's attitude. Didn't Christ tell us very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount that we should pray for our enemies? Uh, that we should do good to them that despitefully use us and persecute us, and so on. Well, uh, Abraham had been pretty grieved, probably pretty offended by someone coming and hauling his wife off. I would have been, wouldn't you? Yeah. But he turned around to a man who had shown himself to be an enemy in this instance and prayed for him, and God heard the prayer. So, Abraham had in his character and personality a lot of the attributes that Christ said we should have. That those that misuse us and abuse us, we should not be offended at. But 
Pray for them. Uh, we should be doing that. I mean, even for our uh, proclaimed enemies here on this property, we should pray that God would bring them to repentance, that God would uh, have mercy, and yet he said, he's already passed his judgment, so I don't pray that they necessarily repent now because I don't think they will. Some might, but I doubt it. Because God says they're going to go out into famine and the sword. He's already said that there in Jeremiah. And I believe that's going to happen because God said it. So my prayer for them is not so much repent now because it doesn't appear they will. Just as Jeremiah also says, pray not for this nation. I don't pray for America. Because God said don't. He said they will not repent. You're wasting your words. So why waste my words and why bug God about something he's already told me not to do? Now, my prayer for these people is that they be in the kingdom of God. That if they go out into the tribulation or pre-tribulation, possibly, before it even really gets started, that before they're killed, they will truly, deeply repent and be in the kingdom of God. I don't want to see any of them miss out on the kingdom of God because of what has occurred here. It's been hard for me. It's been hard for you. It's hard to this day because of the divide and the, the situation. So, uh, they're against us, and we cannot really affiliate and associate with them. We're totally different minds in those terms. And most of it's aimed at me, not you. I realize that. Uh, and that's okay. But my prayer is to that I will be like Abraham here and pray to God for their ultimate good, which is what I do desire for them. And we need to have that kind of attitude and show it. And I, I wanted to show you this in Scripture and then talk about this a little bit because this should be our attitude toward them. Anyway, in chapter 21 then, God visited Sarah and she conceived at the set time, verse 2, of when God had spoken to Abraham and had the baby right on time. Due date. When Isaac showed up, <laughs> she named him Laughter. That's what Isaac means. Uh, because to her, uh, here, the prophecy was fulfilled, and yet she knew she'd laughed, and she knew Abraham had fallen on his face and laughed. Uh, so here is the product of the laughter. God came through, in other words. We laughed, but God produced. And that was the name that was put on him. So we're looking at mostly Abraham here, but I, I want us not to miss the point here that God never fails. He never reneges on a promise. If he makes a promise, it's going to happen. And this happened. She got pregnant right on time, and the baby was born right on time. He is very, very vigilant in regards to his promises. 
That's why Peter could say that he gave us a 7,000-year plan here, and he is not slack concerning his promise. We're on a very late Friday now, in terms of time, the sixth day out of the seven, seventh, uh, or seven days of creation. Uh, they represent each year, a thou, each day, a thousand years through the week. So that's where we are. And these promises and these prophecies are going to happen in very finite detail just according to when God planned it to begin with. And we're understanding more and more of the timing of that plan as it gets closer, because it's actually been hidden in the Scriptures all this time. The people just couldn't see it for what it was. And you couldn't, neither could I. But it's coming into clearer focus, just like he said the book of Daniel couldn't be understood until the end when it would be unsealed. And now as we're getting very, very close, some of those scriptures in Daniel are making a whole lot more sense than they did 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago because it is being opened up a little at a time. We don't know it all yet, but we're getting there. So if we are to be friends with God, we need to be as much like Him as we can be because the more two people are alike, the more things they have in common, the more background they share, the more spiritual and even physical views they share, the easier it is for them to be friends. And the more of that there is, the closer they can become. That they're totally different in character, in political views and spiritual views, they're going to be kind of like oil and water, and it's not going to mix too well. So we don't mix with God well at all as carnal human beings. In fact, there are scriptures that show we're diametrically opposed to God. Our mind is deceitful and desperately wicked. God's not that way. He's kind, he's loving, and we're deceitful and desperately wicked. So how are we going to be friends? Well, he's not going to become deceitful and desperately wicked. He's not going to go there. So what has to happen? We've got to become like him. If you want to be the friend of the sovereign of the universe, then you have to become like he is. And then you begin to mesh. Then you begin to be able to walk together and the Scripture even says in Amos, can two walk together except they be agreed? No, not really. You can't walk together. You can't talk together because all you do is argue and fight and stay away from each other. Got to begin to be more and more alike in order to mesh. And he isn't changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So... We're the ones that have to change. Just like he told Abraham and Sarah, this will happen. At a set time, boom, Isaac shows up right at the set time. Now, there's another example down here I'd like to use uh, later on in this chapter. Uh, well, no, even right here, there's two more. 
when Isaac was circumcised, Hagar saw this, and she mocked, verse 9. And she said to Abraham, uh, Sarah did, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for she shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. So the jealousy between Hagar and Sarah was continuing. And this was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Uh, He was twisted and torn, and yet he knew Isaac was the son of promise, but he had some emotional issues here. Well, how did he handle them? How did he deal with it? This is important. God said to Abraham, verse 12, Let it not be grievous in your sight. Well, it already was. So God said, change your attitude, Abraham. Don't let it be grievous. Because of the lad and because of your bondwoman and all that Sarah has said to you, hearken to her voice. Go ahead, put the woman out. For in Isaac shall your seed be called. So God made it very clear to him, Isaac's the son of promise, Uh, Ishmael is not. Go ahead and separate them from you. But don't be grieved about it. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is your seed. So he says, I'm going to take care of Ishmael. What's God doing here? He's trying to help his friend Abraham deal with this situation that was very perplexing and very upsetting to Abraham. These women have been fighting now for a long, long time, and he was tired of it. And not only that, they had something to fight over, and that was grievous to him. So, this wasn't wasn't happy. Now, what did Abraham do? He listened to God. He didn't say, yeah, but you don't understand. I've been living with this deal for a long time, and it's, it isn't much fun. No. Verse 14, Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So, Abraham accepted what God said, and he was kind toward her. He gave her food and water, or bread and water, and said, We've got to solve this issue. I can't raise a family, and I can't raise an heir that is to be as the multitude of the stars with this continual fighting and bickering going on in my family. I don't know how much he explained to her, but that's what it all came down to, is we can't live with this conflict and have a family raised in peace. And God said, you're the odd woman out, so here's some bread and some water, and uh, God will take care of you, basically. So, he humbled himself before God and accepted what God said. It must have been difficult. He was grieved, he was torn, in other words, between the two women and the two sons. What if you were in that position? I love all my kids, but what if some of them had been from a different mother? And I was told, send these kids away, keep these. 
Yeah, but they're my kids. There's emotion involved. Be difficult. <clears throat> but Abraham acquiesced, did what God said, put his grief aside, but he was kind toward her. And then, when the bread and water were gone, God said, okay, I told Abraham to put you out here, now I'll take care of you. See, when God tells us to do something and we do it, He will take care of the situation. Whatever needs to be done, He is there to take care of it. Just like when Christ told us that we need to be willing to give up father, mother, brother, sister, land, any and everything, to come and follow Him. That's what He told His disciples. And we're His disciples... And whatever he tells us to do, we need to do. And sometimes it means giving up our families. It has with most of us, I suppose, if not all of us, in one way or another. To come, put him first, and get ready to build a temple. To get ready to finish the work of God on this earth. And we've chosen to do what he said. And in many respects, it's caused us hurt with our families, hate from some of them. <coughs> you know what I'm talking about. But God is first. He's simply first. There's no getting around that. doesn't matter what it is or who it is on this earth. If God has a job for you, you go do it. He'll take care of it. Now, do you believe as I do, and I've coached myself on this over time, I've thought about it, God loves my kids more than I love my kids. He loves every human down here far more than any of us are capable of loving another human being. He designed us, He made us, He put the breath of life in us, He caused us to be born through an incredible process, And He loves us more than we can possibly even love ourselves. Now, we have trouble loving Him more than ourselves, and we have trouble loving each other as much as we love ourselves, but God's love transcends any human love or emotion. It's way above and beyond it, far beyond what we can even imagine is how much He loves us. I've said this before, and he counts our hair. He's intimately involved with our lives. So, God shows that here. When she got out there, and the child was thirsty, they didn't have anything to eat. God came and said, Hagar, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Verse 18, Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. So he made a promise to Hagar here. And God opened her eyes. She had closed her eyes, laid back, and says, we're going to die of thirst. Opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. It wasn't a mirage. It was a real well of water. Perhaps it had not been there when she sat down there. Or she should have seen it. 
And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with Ishmael. And he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer, a hunter, and dwelt in the wilderness. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So, Abraham simply followed God's advice. Do we always do that? Well, sometimes we say, well, yeah, I don't like that. I think I'll do it my way. That gets us in trouble. So Abraham had a wonderful attitude, a change of attitude, and did what God said. Now, in verse 22, he had another problem. Here comes Abimelech again, whom he had dealt with with Sarah. And uh, he said uh, to Abraham, verse 22, saying, God is with you in all that you do. I've, I've recognized this. I've seen this. been around you. I see that God's with you. He takes care of you. Now, therefore, swear to me, hereby God, that you will not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done to you. Abimelech had been kind after bringing Sarah back, gave him offerings, gave him silver, said, live anywhere in my land you want to. Abimelech was a man of pretty high character himself. I expect he'll be in God's kingdom someday in the second resurrection. So he said, I told you to do anything you would to me in the land where you've sojourned. And Abraham said, I'll go with that. I'll swear to that. I'll treat you good. Now there was a dispute. Abraham reproved Imelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away, away from Abraham's servants. And Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this thing, neither did you tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. Abimelech's servants hadn't told him that they'd gotten violent and taken this well away from Abraham's servants. Didn't know the story. But he found out that there was trouble. <clears throat> and Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? He said, For these seven ewe lambs shall you take of my hand, that they may be a witness to me that I have digged this well. So Abimelech didn't even know that Abraham's servants had dug it, and it was Abraham's well. But he gives him seven sheep as surety that he's telling the truth. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, the well of the oath, because there they swear both of them. And he made a covenant and so on. Planted a grove of trees there, verse 33, around the well. So here Abimelech had a good attitude. And Abraham returned that good attitude and gave to Abimelech and was a peacemaker. So they made peace among them. Their servants had been warring and probably killing each other. They'd taken it violently. And yet they sat down and made peace. 
If either one had been defensive or egotistical, it could have turned into a war. Now, neither one truly tried to defend his position. Abraham gave him the sheep and then explained, hey, I dug this. Now, let's get along. How often do you and I, if somebody comes to us and says, hey, I got a problem with you, and we get all defensive. I'm not a problem. I didn't do anything. I'm okay. You're the one that's a problem. Don't we do that? It is so natural for us to put ourselves ahead of another person. To love ourselves more than we love them. That's what this is all about. Loving someone else as much as you love yourself. <clears throat> there is no room for pride. There's no room for ego. There's no room for self-assertion. If you did wrong, admit it and apologize. If you didn't do wrong, saying, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way and uh, I'll try not to be that way. I'll try to do different, whatever, and make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll see the kingdom of God. War, war makers won't be there. God will not have war in his kingdom. He's already experienced that with Satan, the devil, and his demons, and he's not going to put up with any more of it. No war, no conflict. When he tells us, now I've told you, God is good on his promises, right? And he showed it here with Abraham. The set time, it will happen. Now, what does God promise you and me? Go to Revelation 21. God promises us there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more death. Absolute peace and security. No conflict, no wars. We will be made perfect in love. And love will be the prevailing emotion of the entire universe from there on. That is a promise from the Almighty Sovereign of the universe. So when I say he will accept no conflict, no disputes, no anger, no heartache, no people being enemies, he means it. That's the way it will be. And Satan and his demons will be bound far away so that they can influence no one. Now that is the promise of Almighty God in his own words. All i got to do is believe him. And look forward to that day when we'll no more have conflict. Wow. You know what? I have trouble imagining it. I have lived with conflict off and on throughout my life. Almost daily a conflict of some kind. Even if it's just in my own head. <laughs> you know? There are conflicts. There are troubles between people. We can't get along. God tells us don't be offended. And He also tells us not to give offense. We can't do either one. And be like Him. If you take offense at somebody, it's your ego, your vanity, your pride, your selfishness 
that causes you to get offended. If you offend someone else, it's because of your superior feelings and your pride and your ego that makes you feel better than them. So, you'll put them down and offend them to make yourself look better. I mean, we could get into the psychology of all this on and on. But that's going to change because our minds, our hearts will change. And we won't be this way anymore. And that's hard to imagine because that's all we've ever dealt with. That's normal. That's natural as a human being. But we're going into the supernatural. If we can but grasp that and believe it and work toward it. That's where we're headed. And Abraham is showing that kind of attitude here. He's reacting as God reacts. And therefore, God made him a friend. Now there's one more. Let's cover one more here. And that's chapter 22. came to pass after these things that God did try or test Abraham, not tempt. There's, God does not tempt anyone. He says that we are tempted of our own passions, of our own ideas, of our own desires. So tempt is a bad translation here. He tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, and Abraham answered, Behold, here I am. That's a nice, receptive attitude. You know, sometimes somebody calls our, our name and we say, What? <laughs> what do you want? Or maybe that's our... We might not say it, but it might be our thought. <laughs> because we're human and we don't want to be bothered or whatever. But being of a ready mind is very, very important to God. Because if... I mean, yeah, you might even say that to yourself sometimes. What do you want? <laughs> Because we can have trouble with our own selves, yes. But it's usually from someone else that our negative reaction comes. Because we don't love them as much as we love ourselves. You know, I tend to be somewhat kind most of the time to myself. I've used the example when I shave, if I do. Uh, I was always pretty careful with that razor. I mean, if I wasn't, I'd come out, especially with a brand new blade, come out bleeding here and here and there and got toilet paper stuck to my face to keep the bleeding stopped. No, I tried to shave pretty carefully because I'd be kind to myself. <coughs> Didn't want to hurt myself. Don't ever want to hurt myself. And when I do get hurt, ouch, I don't like it. I don't like it when you hurt yourself, but I probably like it even less when I hurt myself. That's because I still love me and my flesh more than I love you and your flesh. I'm working on it, okay? That's what we got to do. we got to work on it and have the right attitudes of, here I am. What do you need? How can I help? What can I do? Now, we have those attitudes sometimes, and then sometimes we don't do as well. <laughs> or even if we do say it, we might not really mean it. It takes work. But here's an attitude. Here I am. What do you need? And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
Now, Ishmael was gone, so he could say, your only son. And the other one had been disfellowshipped, <laughs> disinherited, actually. Take your son Isaac, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah. Mount Moriah was at Jerusalem. This one. Offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. I'm pretty sure that was probably the Mount of Jerusalem. That's where Christ was sacrificed, and this was done as a, uh, a forerunner of that. I don't see any argument between verse 2 and verse 3. Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and cut the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. He just simply got up. It had grievous news. God said to Abraham, he said, here I am. What do you want? I want you to go kill your son. Ooh. That would be pretty grievous. That would be a tough thing to take. Hard request. I don't imagine he slept a whole lot that night. I'm sure he thought it through and thought about it. But he had developed a trust in God over a period of time that whatever God said, he would trust him. Now, Scripture even says to us, trust no man, but it does say trust God. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have trust, or we shouldn't have trust among ourselves. We certainly should. Uh, we should act and react toward each other in such a way that a trust of God working through that person should be there. Because we trust that God is converting that person, God is working with that person, and therefore I can trust God through them to some degree. So, if there isn't trust between us, we have all kinds of problems. But this had developed <coughs> over a long period of time where God had done everything he said he would do. So Abraham trusted him. And he knew that there had to be an answer to this that would be a godly answer. And therefore, I'm going to do what God said. So he rose up early and did this. So he traveled. Verse 4, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. Abraham said to his young men, Abide you here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So Abraham took the wood, carried it on his own back, left the donkey there, uh, the wood of the offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son. So he had him carry the wood that would burn him. This was to be a burnt offering, a cremation, if you will. So he let Isaac carry his own death. There's a type of Christ. He carried his own stake that he was to be hung on and die on. So it's a direct type between the Father and Christ Abraham and Isaac. God did not lay anything on Abraham that he would not do himself, which he later did with his son 
Jesus the Christ. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. <laughs> Just like he'd answered God, Here I am, son. What do you need? And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And I think at this point Isaac may have been having some strange thoughts. No, I, I don't. You didn't bring a lamb, Father. You got wood, you got fire, you got a knife, and you got me. This may have been kind of coming through to him. Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Don't worry about his son. God will take care of this. So he imparted faith, trust in God to his son. That's what Isaac needed. Trust in God. So they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood on order and tied Isaac his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now Isaac did not stand up to his father chest to chest here and say, hey, wait a minute, you ain't tying me up. He accepted what Abraham was doing. Did some of the genes that Abraham had and his character and his personality and his relationship with God get passed on to Isaac? I think so. He was as obedient to his father here as Abraham had been to his father in heaven. Same character, same mind. Now, did God have a hand in when Isaac was conceived? Yes, he did. God picked the night, and God picked the right sperm cell. <laughs> there were maybe a million there. But God picked the one that had within it the characteristics that would be needed to be the son of Abraham and the father of Jacob. God was that, that much involved. So here you have a son who did what his dad said. I'm going to tie you up and I'm going to lay you on that wood. Yes, Father. Incredible attitudes on the part of both. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Where would you and I have backed out here? At the beginning of this or about the time you were going to slice your son's throat? The angel of the Lord called to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> Abraham said, here I am. Here I am. That never changed through this whole thing. Here I am. I'm at your beck and call. Whatever you want, here I am. Got any question now about why God tells us in Isaiah 51 to look to Abraham and Sarah 
the hole from which we were dug. Wow. Incredible attitudes with father and son. He said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This test was a final test of Abraham's character, personality, his trust, his belief in God. And when he went this far, God doesn't usually test the average Christian this far. But neither are each of us to be the father of many nations like Abraham was. God had to know. And when he took him this far, he knew. Attitude never changed. Here I am, Father, whatever you say. You tell me to go kill my son, here I am, I'm gone. Get up early in the morning, not late, early. And the son questions you, same attitude. Here I am, Dad, whatever you say. You ever tried to tie one of your boys up? We did it play, playfully when my boys were little. We tried to tie each other up. But if I'd have had a knife and some fire and a bunch of wood there, and I'd said, come here, son, I want to tie you up, I might have met some resistance. <laughs> Just might have. He's the father of the faithful. This is the kind of attitude that God befriended. It's a kind of attitude he wants you and I to have toward him. And toward each other. Because I've not heard it brought out in this way before about what an incredible attitude Isaac himself had. So in this interpersonal relationship between father and son, the son had to have the kind of trust that God had or Abraham had in God. And in our relationships, we need to grow. Grow together, supporting, helping, loving one another, and come to have this kind of relationship where if one of us says, I need you to do this, I need you to do that, and even though it might at times be difficult or hard or grievous, we have come to love and know that person well enough that we say, here I am. Here I am. What do you need? What do you want? What can I do? That's an attitude we flirt with. It's an attitude we have off and on. And people out in the world even have it to some degree as human beings to each other off and on. But we need to become so close so that we're so bound together by the Spirit of God that we can have that kind of confidence, that kind of faith and trust in each other as servants of Almighty God. We're not there, not by any means. 
But just as here, we need to be working in that direction. Channeling our thoughts, channeling our minds, reworking our emotions so that we become spiritually mature mentally, emotionally, and in every way. And it's a tough job. That's why Abraham is held up as such an incredible example. After this, Sarah died, and Abraham went on to have a bunch of kids by Keturah. And there's nothing more, a whole lot, about his character and his personality there. So we'll conclude this the study of Abraham's personality and character with that. But there's so much here for us to learn, so many examples of how he reacted both to God and to man and what God wants us to be. So he holds Abraham up as, well, Christ is our first example because he did everything perfectly. But I think secondary to that, you have to put Abraham under there as the father of the faithful to God, and come to have his attributes, his thoughts, his control, his love for God and love for man, and even Gentiles out there that he could have looked down upon, he treated with love and compassion and made peace with wherever he could. Even that little scatterbrain nephew Lot, he gave the choice of the land. Didn't have to as, as the uncle, but he did because that was his character. That's what he had come to be. And those are the things that Christ tells us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 we are to be. So when he tells us there in Malachi here at the end, we need to be turned to our fathers, this applies. We have to turn to our Father in Heaven, number one. That's the first and most important relationship. But to our fathers, we have to also turn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because there are fathers in the faith who did obey God. So they are premier examples that we need to be considering here in the end times. Would you have a problem being prepared for the kingdom of God if your reactions and your character and your personality fit the things that we've just looked at about Abraham. If you exhibited all these attitudes, you'd be a shoe-in. God would say, hey, there's somebody like Abraham. I'll take all of those I can get. Yeah, I want that one. I don't want God up there who's pondering my heart to be really sitting there saying, you know, I got 144,000 chairs here for this wedding. There's Daryl down there. Mm. And here's so-and-so over here. I only got one seat left. Which one am I going to put in it? I don't want God having that problem with me. Know what I mean? I want to be one of those that he says, yeah, i got a spot for him. Might be that last chair. Great. Didn't Christ tell us? You go to the wedding or go to the feast, take the lowest chair. 
Somebody wants you to come up with you, wonderful. But be humble, be meek, be ready to take the last one. So I'm, I'd be happy with that last one. Don't get me wrong. But I want God sitting there scratching his head and saying, do I want, do I really want him in my kingdom? And he's perplexed. No, I don't want him there. I don't want him there. I want him to be able to look at me and say, you know, I'm pretty happy with him. Wouldn't it be nice if God would have that attitude toward you and me, all of us? I called you out. I brought you here. I want you to do some work. We go ahead and we do that work. And he says, yeah, this is working. I want all these. I'll take all these. I got some more out there I'm going to gather, but I'll take these. It'd be nice. It reminds me of choosing up sides for football or baseball or basketball in college. And the coach says, well, here's a captain, there's a captain, choose players. And you know who's going to go first and second and third. And you have a pretty good idea who might be chosen last. Whether it's you or that run over there that always gets chosen last. And if you're that run over there, you dread that. There's only two left. Yeah, he's going to choose the other one. I'm going to be dead last. Nobody wants me. That's an awful feeling to have. Let's not make God go there. Let's grow. Let's overcome. Let's change. Let's love each other as we love ourselves. Let's love God more than we love anything. And be always ready to say, here I am. What do you want? Okay.